If you would turn in, uh, tonight in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. And as you're uh, doing that, just remind you again that um, I'm, I'm going to be gone the next two Sundays, uh, Lord willing, uh, being flying out to Westminster in California for board meetings and then uh, to General Assembly at, uh, in Sioux Center, Iowa. Jeff is going to be here. Uh, moving things forward, and uh, it's great to leave with such capable hands. But if you would pray for Jeff, it sometimes seems like when I leave, um, there's certain crises that just arise, and uh, <laughs> I'll get a text, uh, you know, don't worry, but, and, um, and I never worry, uh, but if you just pray for Jeff, it, it is, um, it sometimes can be, there's just a lot extra falls on his shoulders, so pray for, uh, for our brother as he's uh, moving forward here and carrying out the ministry of God here at Harvest Church and so thankful for him. First Peter chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. We're going to be focusing tonight in verse 5 and um, so I'm going to read through verse 9. Let's give our attention to the words of our brother Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And then he describes things that are true about you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's ask the blessing of the Lord on his word. Oh God in heaven, we thank you for Peter. We thank you, Lord, for this brother that we can identify with so easily. And we thank you for your work of grace in his life as he experienced the preserving power of God and now is able to comfort us with these great truths. And so, Father, give us ears to hear and hearts that will be comforted then by the glorious things that are true because of what you are doing in Jesus Christ. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things I love about uh, the New Testament epistles uh, Paul's letters, uh, John's letters, and Peter's letters here, uh, James. I love the way that the apostles so seamlessly weave biblical doctrine, biblical theology into the hard and sometimes discouraging, messy reality of the Christian life. Uh, when they talk about 
the Christian life. There are no pious platitudes. There's no pretending that things are other than they are. Peter is writing to people who are suffering, people who are scattered throughout the world of that day, scattered in an incredibly pagan world, a very a world that opposes the things of God vehemently. Uh, he's writing to people who have been ostracized because of their newfound faith. Um, the, the, the word of God went forth. People uh, who were the elect children of God have believed it. They've come to faith, and they've suddenly found that they don't fit anymore. They don't fit in their, in, their, uh, in their former life, in their former world. Maybe you've had the experience of going uh, to a high school reunion. I've avoided, uh, I'm, uh, we've simply not had them um, because, uh, uh, well, a variety of reasons, I won't get into it. But uh, if you've ever gone to a high school reunion and maybe you realize that your best friends, you know, the guys that you were so tight with, the girls that you hung with in high school, it, just something's not, it's, it's not the same. You don't really fit there anymore. You've, maybe your lives have just gone off in very different directions. And, and uh, the things that you took so much joy in together, you just don't enjoy those things anymore. And um, you don't fit. Well, that is the entirety of the experience of these New Testament Christians. They don't fit. They don't belong. It, it, they're, they're aliens in their hometown. And so what Peter does is he weaves into the reality of, of that experience these, the truth of the gospel, that um, he addresses them as God's elect exiles, takes the doctrine of election that people uh, find so often difficult and, and hard to comprehend and, and to receive, and Paul just takes it and, and shows these these suffering Christians, the glory of what God has done for them. God has chosen them to be his very own possession. And of course they don't fit in the world. They don't belong in the world. They belong as, they are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so they, um, they've got a whole new reality that belongs to them as heirs of everlasting life. And so what would be a trial, the fact that they don't fit, they're being ostracized, now becomes an honor. It becomes a, a testimony to their true identity. They are the elect exiles of God himself, citizens of heaven. See, theology, biblical truth, is meant for Christian living. It's meant to be experienced. It's meant to be enjoyed by God's people. One of the greatest battles of faith, as we uh, saw this morning, is, is the battle to apply our theological knowledge to the reality of our circumstances so that we have true spiritual understanding and so that we experience the peace and the joy and the assurance which Jesus Christ died to provide for us. But the first step in that process is we need to have the theological knowledge. This is a, not, won't be a surprise to you, but one of the devil's most devastating strategies uh, in the modern American church particularly is that he's convinced church-going people, Christians, that theology is boring and therefore uh, impractical and unnecessary. And then as long as you love Jesus and uh, you understand the basic, basic gospel message, it's really all you need to do. And so there's no real point in studying theology. Well, that, that, is, that is spiritually devastating. 
Because you see, the, the theology, it, 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 it's just biblical truth. It's God's truth concerning who He is, what He's like, concerning who we are, what we need, concerning Jesus Christ or what He accomplished. Biblical truth is, uh, this whole book is, is theology. Not dead, boring theology. It is incredibly exalted, life-giving theology as we understand these things. But we need to know the truth, the basic facts. It's essential for our peace and joy. And so tonight, uh, we're going to... Um, Continue in sort of our theology lesson. Last time we were in 1 Peter, we looked at the doctrine of election as Peter applies it to his hearers. Tonight we're going to look at this wonderful doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Uh, as we see it in verse 5, who, describing God's people, these, these, these believers, by God's power are guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Uh, look, and just notice those prepositions. By God's power, through faith, the instrument by, uh, of perseverance for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. And then Peter immediately follows it up, verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. And my question for you tonight is, do you? Do you ever think about the fact that to be a Christian means that you are, by God's power, the power that created the universe by God's power, you are being guarded through faith for a salvation that will be revealed at the last time. Do you ever think of it? Do you rejoice in it? Do you, do you rejoice in the fact that no matter what the present circumstances of your life might be, the eternal circumstances of your life are fixed? That Jesus Christ is going to be uh, revealed. Paul, uh, Peter talks about that a little farther along, about the, the, the glory that's uh, going to be revealed, the, the praise and glory and honor that will belong to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's in verse 7. And so my question tonight is simply, is that a, is that a part of your Christian experience? This, this rejoicing, this inexpressible joy he talks about in verse 8 and 9, that you believe in him and rejoice. Isn't it interesting how often the, the uh, apostolic letters talk about Christian joy? I think we treat Christian joy often as sort of it's a benefit if you're like really spiritual or if you're just having a really good day. Um, it's one of those nice things that every once in a while if you get a taste of joy, good for you. And yet the apostles seem to treat it as a, a significant and essential ingredient of the Christian life. That, this, that Jesus died to give you this. And the normal experience of a Christian should be joy. Not just chipper happiness. I've got no problems, got no issues, life is awesome. But real deep abiding conviction and joy in the fact that I am the child of God, and God is doing his work, and God is going to finish the work that he's begun. I'm a success story. I'm going to make it. There's a movie, oh, it came out a long time ago, um, The Kid. Maybe you, uh, some of you uh, saw The Kid. Bruce Willis, if you remember, um, was, was a, a very successful, very proud 40-year-old professional and he's unexpectedly visited by an eight-year-old version of himself. He doesn't know who this kid is, but 
It's just strange. The kid has the same name as he has and uh, same scars, same odd habits. It's, it's him at eight years old. And, uh, and as, the, as the story unfolds, I'm going to completely spoil it for you, but as the story unfolds, um, little Rusty, the eight-year-old Rusty version, is just really disappointed at how he turned out. Um, when, when the boy realizes that this guy that he's, that he's uh, hanging with is, is him at 40 years old, and he realizes that at 40 years old he's not a pilot, he doesn't have a wife, he doesn't even have a dog, he sighs in despair, in despair I grew up to be a loser. It's a great line. I grew up to be a loser. And Bruce Willis, right, the older, is looking kind of um, convicted by this. And the plot of the movie, then, is how um, the older version of Rusty gets in touch with his forgotten childhood and does some things differently so they don't end up as losers. And, and at the end of the movie, then they, they meet uh, their 70-year-old version, if you remember. And... Um, they're visited by this elderly stranger who's, who's them at 70, and he's awesome. He's married. He's got kids. He's got a dog named Chester, and best of all, he flies this beautiful airplane, and uh, he loads his family onto that airplane, and they take off uh, Chester with them, and 40-year-old and Rusty and 8-year-old Rusty are left dancing there on the runway. We made it. We're not losers. We're not losers. <clears throat> I love that movie. <laughs> reason I love it is because that ought to be the experience of a Christian. In the Bible, we get to see the ultimate version of ourselves. We're not losers. We're not failures. Not in the gospel. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more exalted than angels. We make it. Every child of God makes it. That's what Peter is talking about in verse 5. If we belong to Jesus today, we should have that, that delight, that joy of knowing that we, we made it. In Jesus, we're not losers. And that our ultimate destiny is assured to us because it is God himself who keeps us for that destiny. God himself, by his own power, shielding us, guarding us through our faith, which he gives to us for the salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. We're going to make it. No matter what the world says, no matter what the obstacles that we face, no matter what trials we go through, nothing can prevent us from our ultimate version of ourselves as glorified, perfected heirs of everlasting life. Now, if we believe that, you see, there should be inexpressible joy. And it, there will be if we, if we really understand this and grasp. And so tonight, just going to take a bit to... Look at the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. This is a controversial doctrine. There was a, a, a man attending here for a while, and I would love to see him come back again. Um, very thoughtful man and um, very kind man. And yet uh, I, met, I met him in my office a while back, and uh, he asked me, do you believe in, the, in eternal security? And I said, well, yeah, I do. And uh, he did not, and that was uh, a point of uh, concern for him. 
Uh, well, there are many people who are unwilling to believe in the doctrine of eternal security because there's a version of it out there that is not biblical. And the version of it that's out there is if you just walk down the aisle and you say the sinner's prayer, uh, you can know for certain no matter what happens to you or how you live after that, you're in, you're saved. Maybe just by the skin of your teeth, but if you said the sinner's prayer, you are forever saved. You're eternally secure. And so there are people all over this land who um, are living without reference to God, and yet they have a, a vague belief in God and a conviction that because when they were 12, year olds, they, 12 years old, they got baptized or they said the sinner's prayer, they're okay. Well, they're not okay. They're not living in faith. They're not showing evidence of being born again. And so that eternal security is just a facade. And we want to reject that version of eternal security. And there's others who don't believe in eternal security because they look in the Bible and they see people who fail miserably. And, and boy, those evidences are there, aren't they? You think about Noah. Here's this righteous man who gets drunk and fathers children with his daughters. It's just gross and perverse. It's ugly. Abraham, father of the faith, lies repeatedly about his own wife and, and gives her away. Moses loses his temper, strikes the rock, and is kept from the promised land. Peter, the, the author of this, of this epistle, denied that he knew Jesus. He was willing to, to say, let God condemn me if I know this man. And so the doctrine of eternal security does not say that, that Christians won't fall into grievous sin. They will. They do. But what it teaches is that a Christian will not fall away. That though God allows his children at times to fall into grievous sins, he will not allow them to fall away from their faith. That God will preserve them in the end. So having rejected those ideas of what it does not mean, what does it mean? Well, what I'd like you to do is grab your Trinity hymnal. It's right underneath the chair in front of you. And I'd like you to turn to page 858. And we're going to read together the chapter 17. Eight hundred and fifty-eight in the back. And let's read the, uh, the first two paragraphs there. First, they whom God hath accepted in his beloved effectually called and sanctified by his spirit can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Let's just pause right there for a moment. That is, a, that is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints in its essence. Those that God has accepted in Jesus those whom God has effectually called to himself, he's given them faith, he's sanctifying them by the Holy Spirit, they will not ultimately fall away. They shall certainly persevere to the end. They shall certainly be eternally safe. That is really good news. On your really bad days, when the world, the flesh, and the devil have, have ganged up on you and your faith has just crumbled and you've given in to a besetting sin or you've... Um, 
Maybe you just have doubts that arise in your mind, and how can these things be true? And, um, and you, you just find there's an unbelieving spirit about you. And you, and you might wonder, how, how, could I, how could I be saved? I don't even know if I, if I believe all this. And, and how could I be saved and, and think and do these things? It's wonderful to realize you, that, that God himself is holding you, that if you have, if these things have been true of you, if you've been effectually called and you've, you've believed in Jesus Christ and the, and the Holy Spirit has been at work sanctifying you, God has begun a work, you will be eternally saved. That's the doctrine. Now, the reason that some people deny or reject that doctrine is because there are some biblical texts that seem to undermine it. I'm going to just show you one, and, and just to help you see the importance of knowing your Bible and being able to interpret it. So if you would just turn to 2 Peter in your Bible, we're going to look at one objection. 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 1. I'm not going to take a great deal of time on this, but I think it, it is helpful because there are texts that seem to suggest that believers can lose their salvation. So, 2 Peter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And so uh, someone who is opposing the doctrine of perseverance of the saints would say, here you have uh, people who um, were bought by the master and yet have lost their salvation. And that's what it seems to say, right? That seems to be a plausible interpretation of that text. How would we respond? Well, this is where a little um, um, knowledge about the original languages helps. Uh, or, and this is why God gives teachers to the church. Because um, this text, uh, the master, if, you, if I would ask you, who do you think that is? I think most of us would say, well, that's Jesus. Uh, well, actually, uh, that is not who, is, who Peter is referring to here. We have evidences for that. One, the Greek word that's used here is not the Greek word kyrios, which is almost always used for Lord. It's the word despotes. And in the New Testament, that is almost always a reference to God the Father as Lord. So in Luke, I'll just quickly give you some examples of this. Luke 2.29, you have godly old Simeon. Uh, he sees Jesus and he prays, Sovereign Lord, that's our word here, as you have promised, let your servant depart in peace. He's praying to the Father as he's holding baby Jesus. Uh, in Acts, in the book of Acts, chapter 4, there, the church is being persecuted and the, and the believers um, gathered together in prayer to God, Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it. And later on they say, uh, indeed, Herod and Pilus, Pontius Pilate met together to conspire against your holy servant Jesus. So when they're saying Sovereign Lord, they're praying to God the Father, and they're even speaking to God the Father about his holy servant Jesus. So it's not a reference to the second person of the Trinity, but the first person of the Trinity. That is further uh, evidenced when you um, realize that the buying that Peter has in mind here is not a redemptive term referencing the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He's borrowing it from the Old Testament where we know that God bought Israel out of Egypt. So um, 
the uh, Deuteronomy 32, verse 6. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? And you'll find the New Testament writers doing this often, where they'll, they'll speak of God's deliverance of Israel in the Old Testament as a sign pointing to what Jesus would do in the New Testament, and yet there's, there's continuity and discontinuity. Uh, one of the things that we know in the Old Testament is God bought all of Israel as a corporate entity. He bought them and brought them out of Egypt. And yet most of them died in unbelief. Most of them died in the wilderness. So because they were temporarily brought out of Egypt and temporarily enjoyed the, uh, the, the blessings of God's deliverance out of Egypt, many, if not most of them, did not enter into the spiritual blessedness of, of faith in God and the resulting everlasting life. So the point that Peter's making is that there are some in the church who do enjoy the temporal blessings of being bought out of bondage like God buying Israel out of Egypt, but they're not really Christians. They're false prophets, just like there were false prophets in Israel who came out of Egypt. And he, Peter speaks of these people a little later on in chapter 2. He says, Of them the proverb is true, a dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. So they're like sows. They're washed sows. But you can wash a pig till the cows come home, just use some agricultural terms, but uh, you're not going to wash off the pigness. And so when you get done washing the pig, and it's a hot day out, and they're looking for someplace cool, where are they going to go? They're going to go wallow in that mud. And I remember as a little boy watching the hogs just absolutely enjoy rolling in the mud and laying themselves completely out, slathering themselves with it. Why do they do that? Because they're pigs. It's their nature. It's how they know how to act. You see, their pig, a washed pig at some point is going to become a dirty pig. He's always going to resort to his nature. And Peter says that's what's true here. That these people have the appearance of being Christians, of being prophets, but they haven't been born again. Haven't been made new. They're not a new creature. They're not a new creation. They're still sows. And a sow will do what sows do. We need to be changed internally inside. And so just a quick, <clears throat> here's a verse that if you, at first glance, would seem to deny the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, and yet further study reveals he's not denying the, the, the doctrine at all. Uh, much less, if he were, it would clearly then contradict everything he said in verse 5, right? We've got to do our Bible study, and, be, and don't be afraid. Any text that someone would raise as an objection to something that you believe the Bible teaches, do your homework. Don't just say, well, that's what I've been taught, or that's what I believe. Be willing to do your homework, but you'll be amazed how the Bible actually supports the truth. Praise God. Now, let me take the rest of our time here just to defend this doctrine. I'd like you to read, let's read the second paragraph here of the Westminster. This is a wonderful statement. There are numerous reasons given here why we can take comfort from this doctrine of perseverance, why it must be true. Here we go. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will. It's not up to you. But upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit 
and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. Now, I'm just going to give you a couple verses. Uh, if you have your Bible, uh, you can, you can uh, move with me here. This is uh, sort of like what we do in theology class. We're just bouncing through uh, the scriptures looking at the things that we're uh, studying. So immutability of the decree of election. If you just go to Romans chapter 8, in fact, you can keep a finger there because uh, we'll be referring to it several times. Romans chapter 8, the confession of faith talks about the immutability, which means unchangeable. It, it, it doesn't change. God doesn't elect and then say, oh, I'm not sure about that one. Let's, let's unelect that person. Now, if it were you or me, we'd be doing that all day long. Thinking, oh, I, don't, I don't know. Really? God never does. He elects his calling and election are sure. It, they are never revoked because it is flowing, you see, not from the, the worth of the individual, but from the free, unchangeable love of God the Father. Why does God love you? Why did he love you before the foundation of the world? Why did he decide to love you when he knew what you would be like? Because he wanted to. Because he decided to. Because it gave him joy to do so. In that sense, it had nothing to do with you, which is a little offensive to us, right? Because our pride wants to say, well, it had to be something. No, no, there's nothing. He just decided to love you, knowing you. Free love of God and unchangeable love of God, and that's why he has set his love in election upon you. Let's look at Romans chapter 8. I told you to turn to it. Let me quickly turn to it. Romans 8, 28 and 30, through 30, right? We know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, but didn't notice what he says. For those whom he foreknew, that's a word for set his love upon them, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those, notice the chain of salvation here. Those whom he predestined, he also called, every last one of them. And those whom he called, he justified, declared righteous, innocent before the court of divine justice. Every last one of them by virtue of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And those whom he justified, he also glorified every single last one of them. There is no breakage in the chain. No one starts with being predestined who does not arrive at being glorified. Because God is doing all the work. The immutability of the decree of God's sovereign election is a reason the doctrine of perseverance of the saints must be true. The efficacy, secondly, of the merit of Christ, the reason God was able to justify you is because there was a perfect righteousness made available that could be given as a free gift to you. And on the basis of that righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ offered up on the cross, God could take that righteousness, apply it to your account, and justly declare over you the unjust person innocent. That's the best news in the whole world. There's no other religion that has anything like it. That God could declare justly as the judge of heaven and earth that you, the sinner, are innocent by virtue of the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to you. You see, the, the merit of Jesus is efficacious. It is 
fully able to accomplish the salvation of the greatest sinners. It does accomplish it. If you look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 through 14, one of the great evidences of this, Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews 10, verse 11 through 14. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Yeah. Reading through the Old Testament right now, do you, I mean, it was a slaughterhouse. Thousands of oxen, thousands of lambs, blood spilled every day, and none of it able to actually take away sins. But, verse 12, when, Jesus, when Christ, who had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has perfected for all time you though you are still being sanctified and you're not there yet. But you're perfected by the efficacy of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The, the Westminster speaks of the efficacy of the intercession of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 8 again, Paul talks about how the Spirit prays for us and how Jesus Christ himself prays for us. Who shall lay any charge against God's elect? It is, God's, it is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Jesus who also is interceding for us, he says. Jesus prays for you. Have you ever thought about that? Do you think Jesus' prayers are for naught? Do you think Jesus' prayers are ever denied? Isn't it wonderful that when, when Peter is going to commit his, the greatest sin of his life, Jesus told him it was going to happen, and then, but he, he said, Peter, you need to know that, Simon, that, uh, that Satan has asked to have you. Satan did not ask God to be allowed to make Peter stumble. Satan asked God to have Peter's soul, to destroy him. That's what Satan asks concerning you. He's a devouring lion. You have an enemy who wants to destroy you. But Jesus, knowing that Peter would sin, wants him also to know, Peter, I've prayed for you so that you will not fall. So you will not fall away. You will not be lost. And Peter could not possibly be lost. He was just as found and delivered and safe when he was saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, as when he was saying, May God condemn me if I ever knew the man. Because you see the prayers of Jesus Christ. Jesus prays for you. The abiding of the Spirit is another reason. The seed of God within us. The nature of the covenant of grace is another reason. It's a covenant of grace. God determined to save you by grace and grace alone. From all which ariseth the certainty and infallibility thereof of this doctrine. The certainty and infallibility. And friends, that's why you can have certain and infallible assurance. The Bible wants us to have assurance. The Bible wants us to know with absolute certainty that we belong to Jesus Christ, to know that nothing can separate us from his love, that those, uh, because God has begun a work in us, no one is going to be able to snatch us out of the Father's hand. Jesus says that in John 27, and here's the two parts in a sense of perseverance. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. So one part of perseverance is that, is that uh, God is going to enable you to exercise your faith so that you hear the voice of Jesus and you 
have a desire and willingness to follow him. Friend, if you do not have that tonight, if you hear the voice of Jesus, you read your Bible, you hear sermons, and the truth is that there's simply no true desire in your heart to know this Jesus and to follow this Jesus, then I don't know if you can say that you are a Christian. And I would encourage you, I would beg you to consider the fact, that fact, and, and, and that that it is a day of grace and that if you would today repent of your sin, repent of the hardness of your heart, and you would say, Lord Jesus, make me someone who hears the voice of Jesus and desires to follow him, that God will answer that prayer. It's pleasing to his will. But if Jesus says one part of perseverance is the, is the truth of faith. God guards us through faith. He gives faith, and that faith looks like listening to Jesus Following the voice of Jesus, that's one part. The other part, verse 29, my Father has given them to me. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. If you're a Christian friend, you are in the hand of the Father. And the Father is greater than all. You got Jesus praying for you. You have the Holy Spirit who's also interceding for you, a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And you have God the Father himself holding on to you. And no one, no one is going to snatch you out of your hand, out of his hand. And so what's the truth about you? If I would just ask you that uh, this morning, or, or if I would just run into you in the street and say, what's the truth about you? You'd say, you, you would immediately think of your current circumstances. I would. I would say, well, the truth is, um, and I would tell you about my day or I would tell you about my week. The answer for a Christian, what's true about me, in spite of my great weakness, in spite of my unbelief, in spite of my sin, I have been born again by the, by the power of God. I've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. I have been claimed by the, by the Father. Jesus is praying for me. The Holy Spirit is at work within me. And I, I am not much right now. I if you would examine my life, you'd see failures, you'd see flaws throughout it. But let me tell you, one day I'm going to be something. One day you're going to be something. One day you are going to be, if you are a child of God, you're going to be a glorified, perfected heir of everlasting life, the bride of Jesus Christ. If you belong to him today, you belong to him forever. You're going to make it. You're going to make it. Take that truth into every corner of your life. Take that truth into every temptation you face. Take it into every trial that comes your way. The fact that God is guarding you by his power through your faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. May that day come soon. Amen. Oh, Father in heaven, we need to uh, learn to apply our theology. Father, you know our hearts tonight. and Father, I pray that if there are any here tonight who really do not have a desire to know Jesus Christ, Lord, that you would convict them of the sin of that and that they would realize that without Jesus Christ, they are utterly, eternally lost. Without a real knowledge of him and faith in him and relationship with him, they, they are not saved. And so, Lord, give them the joy of confessing their sin and, and gaining the assurance that comes by faith that they're an heir of heaven. Father, the rest of us, all of us, Lord, are going to face trials and temptations. And we so easily read our identity in our circumstances. And I, I pray that you'd give us the ability to read our identity in the gospel. 
and our future in the things that you promise. I pray that we would have the joy of knowing that in Jesus Christ we are more than conquerors, that no one can lay any charge against us, that the inheritance that Jesus Christ died to give us will never be taken away from us. And so we can have absolute confidence and assurance that one day, by the preserving power of God, one day we will be home. And one day we will be all that you have created us to be. In the presence of Jesus our Savior, we pray that day would come soon. Amen.